plenty for uh, us all to digest here, and, and Jim is staying with us uh, on the panel for this. Um, and as I say, we have four responders on this. So um, we're running just a little bit behind, so we won't unduly delay on this. So let me introduce the first of our four contributors. She is the chairperson of the Policing Authority, uh, the former chairperson of the Revenue Commissioners from 2004 to 2014, during which time we saw the rollout of the local property tax. Will you please welcome Josephine Feely. Thank you, Jim Grimogov. Um, and it's nice to be back talking about a subject I understand um, because I lived with it for so long. I, I struggle sometimes in my new world to be as fluent on policing as I, uh, as, as I am on taxation. Um, I have to begin by confessing a prejudice that I just confessed to Jim when I met him this afternoon. I've had a prejudice all of my civil service career uh, that policy execution or policy implementation is not given the time and the space it deserves in policy development. Now, that, I have that prejudice because I spent all of my career in implementing departments. The first half of it was in the Department of Social Welfare as it was then, and then subsequently the second half in revenue with a few little other bits in between, but those are the two big chunks. And so I found, obviously, you, as you would expect, having confessed that prejudice, I found Jim's conclusion about the implementation levers um, to be absolutely um, credible and, uh, and I completely agree with it. And I think, I suppose, when I reflect back on my, on my career, being in a department that had to implement its own policy for the first 20 years of my career and had to implement it between, quite often between a budget in December and um, people had to have money in their pockets by the 1st of April for a social welfare change. It gave, it, it created a culture that had a, a symbiotic relationship between the policy making and the implementation. A constant saying, yeah, but how will we do it? Will it work? Because if it didn't work, the policy maker the minister was exposed and it was all in the one shop. And so I suppose that's where sort of my, my as I say, my prejudice comes from is that notion that if you are res responsible for implementing your own policy, it brings an edge uh, to the policy making that you don't always get. So having confessed that, um, that prejudice at the start, and, and, and you can, you'll see that as I go through my remarks. I'm just going to say a couple of things about LPT and then maybe broaden it into the policy making generally. Um, my first engagement with the notion of property tax came uh, when the Fianna Fáil Green government had a property tax in the programme. And being the tax authority, as a good planner, I said to the minister of the day, are we going to have to have something to do with this? We need to be thinking about how to go about it. And he said, no, no. So we, we went back, I went back to the office, and it was really interesting, the reaction of my colleagues. Some of them said, thank you, God. Uh, we don't want to touch that. It's, oh, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be a mess. Um, and the other half of us said, yeah, but, but we're the tax authority. Like, if we're not collecting tax, what are we here for? So the upshot of that kind of early engagement was we, we did give some you know, casual time to think about how one might do it if one had to. So when I was subsequently asked by uh, Minister Noonan to think about whether we would uh, take on a property tax, I guess we'd already done some of the thinking um, at, at, at quite a casual level, and that helped us to condense the time in which we could approach it. But one of the critical success factors that wasn't on Jim's list was having a very wily minister who, um, who kind of suckered us in because initially the programme said we'll have LPT from January 2014. And having sort of persuaded us that we could do it, um, he said, well, now, would you have a go at doing it for a half a year from July 13? And so gradually, um, he just kind of reeled in the administrative system. He also, that decision to go for a half year was also a very wily policy decision because, and, and in Jim's report, he talks about it being to enable revenue to get ready. No, it wasn't. It was to enable the taxpayers to only have to pay a very small amount in the first year because revenue could never have been ready any earlier than that. Um, 
they, uh, in fact, we, as I say, we were supposed to be ready. So there was a lot of cleverness in the, in the minister's analysis uh, that was critical to the success of LPT. Um, the other thing that was critical to its success, and here I want to pay tribute to the household charge. The household charge from a standing start of nothing, with no history of collecting money, got a lot of money. It also ventilated a lot of issues that we were able to say, okay, we better be ready for that one, we better be ready for that one. So we did have that benefit of having a ventilation of a lot of the resistance factors. And as we were preparing for the implementation of this, we had constantly reminders in the household charge experience of, you need an answer for every cohort of people who will tell you they don't want to pay. Um, and that we probably wouldn't have been as well prepared if it hadn't been for the household charge, because I think for an organization that had no experience or expertise, uh, it did a really good job uh, collecting a lot of money on a voluntary compliance uh, basis. Revenue is an organization that had been through its own uh, public confidence issues, its bad hair days, its crises, and out of all of that came a very strong sense of project management, which we were able to harness, but also a sense of performance. And one of the objectives, which isn't always stated in relation to LPT, LPT was, you know, the, and again, Jim's report references the objective, yes, it was to raise money. Yes, it was to broaden the tax base so that it was a more sustainable tax base going forward. But there was also another objective, and it's important to name it, Bearing in mind where we were, the public sector was not held in high regard. The, and I include the executive, political system, public servants in that. There was a general view that all of those people had let the country go where it went. Rightly or wrongly, it's the public confidence point. So there was an objective that ran right through the project of showing that something could actually be done. And that was something that uh, touched a nerve in revenue that, that we certainly, I certainly found I was able to harness and get my colleagues uh, to respond to. The, the messaging, Kieran uh, spoke in his opening remarks about nudge. The messaging was very important. The communications were something we spent an inordinate amount of time at. Um, easy to pay and hard to avoid became the slogan. And we prepared for every possible question. We saturated local media with local people on local radio in particular. Um, because if we were going to get people to comply voluntarily, we had to be able to answer all of the questions. So we had a whole army of people that we made available to every local radio station uh, in Ireland. And we did a lot of national media as well. We built on all the existing revenue powers. We just applied them a bit differently to a new cohort of people. And we got some new ones, which we hadn't been able to get before. One of them, again, Jim referenced, which was the capacity to attach government payments. We hadn't been able to do that before. Um, and we did have to be able to, as I said, we had to have an answer for every group who might say they wouldn't pay. So people who were getting money out of the government, we needed an answer that so you can't be getting money from the government and refusing to pay in. So uh, the capacity to attach farm payments was particularly uh, important for us to have that as a message. In the end, we didn't need to use these very often. And that's another part of the nudge. It's partly about um, having the powers and being showing that you're not afraid to use them, then you generally speaking don't have to use them um, uh, that often. But to get back to the policy making points, um, the objectives, I think, in policy making always need to be clear and they need to be clearly articulated in what's the policy about. And it always involves trade-offs. There were masses of trade-offs in the development of property tax. Trade-offs between pure, elegant policy and implementable policy. Trade-offs between large amounts of money, small amounts of money widely spread. Trade-offs between what might be acceptable, what might be deliverable, what might find um, public acceptability, and what might be ideal. 
And I suppose our experience in revenue is not just about property taxes, about everything, is deal with those trade-offs, name them, and then develop, fix if you like, improve, adapt in future years. There isn't a single tax head that hasn't been modified and adapted and improved on or disimproved on, depending on your point of view, whether you like paying it, but at least adapt it um, incrementally over time. And so there was a huge amount of interaction between my team, the Department of Finance, um, all around those, um, those trade-offs to make sure that uh, every, there was no ambiguity. Um, Jim talks in the report about a visit I made to the Economic Management Council, uh, which apparently they found reassuring. Uh, that's not my memory of it. But I know why, what I was about when I went to the Economic Management Council. I was about, it was about risk management. And that's an important point in the Economic Management Council. It doesn't matter where, neither here nor there. You do need to name the risks and have a treatment for the risks um, and I needed to be sure that everybody understood that this was not going to look pretty. Um, Revenue was quite happy to take the task and hold its nerve, but we needed everybody to hold their nerve when 1.6 million letters started flowing out of the organisation. Revenue doesn't write to 1.6 million people in the ordinary course at all. It's managed to outsource a lot of that to employers through the PAYE system. But writing, flooding the system with 1.6 million letters over a month is an enormous task and I needed to be sure that uh, before the final inquest dry on the legislation, the policymakers understood what they had decided. Um, and I think that's a really important piece of policymaking as they say the EMC is neither here nor there. The same I would say today if I was dealing with the Department of Finance, I would want to be sure that the civil servants advising the ministers, all of them, understood what was actually physically going to happen. So there's no surprises when it happens. And sometimes we're not that good at naming those pieces when the policy and the implementation are not sufficiently welded together. Um, so that, for me, that was a critical, a critical piece in the whole story. Um, a very significant number of the key decisions that Jim had up on the wall on his slide earlier were driven by practical considerations. And that comes back to the trade-offs. I remember the head of tax in the IMF telling me we absolutely could not do it on a self-assessment basis. But we hadn't any choice. There was no valuation system that could produce a property tax in a year and a bit. Uh, it would have taken years. It would have taken armies of people. You'd have had appeals and all the rest of it. So some of the, the decisions that appear enlightened are often driven by practical considerations when you, when you build in the implementation levers. And, and certainly that was the case uh, uh, with LPT. I guess I'd like to finish, because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of, of Jim's time, so I have a few other points here, but I'll save them for questions. But I would like to finish with a few remarks. Jim talked about uh, LPT being a conditional success. And there's no question, but that's, that's right. Um, it's a conditional success because it's frozen in 2013. Um, and I know, I'm sure Don will talk about the work he's done since. But if it stays frozen in 2013, as well as the, um, the contribution of the tax to the, to the National Exchequer uh, uh, diminishing in proportion, as Jim pointed out, the value for money argument for the machine that is required to collect it uh, will, could become compelling. There's an unfairness built in because new houses are exempt since 2013. And now we're building again. So there's an unfairness built in. And unfairness damages tax and damages the acceptability of tax. If it's clear, you can have arguments about what's fair at the margins. But if you have a fundamental unfairness, uh, it, it, it damages the acceptability piece, which is something that we worked uh, extremely hard at. The question about, again, its, its conditional success is also part of a bigger discussion about the relationship between local government and central government. And 
it would be unfortunate if, if LPT became a sort of a victim of that discussion uh, because it was part of the design was to allow, encourage, support local government in using the, the levers available to it to vary the tax and a part of that being hopefully to build a greater acceptability uh, of the tax. And if that, if that isn't built on, I think that would be, uh, would be unfortunate as well. I guess just a final point I want to make is um, a lot of the issues that, that Jim illustrated about uh, uh, water charges arose in relation to LPT, but they probably happened kind of more behind the scenes in a quieter sort of way. Everything that could be that you'd expect to go wrong went wrong. Uh, the first output of letters, the envelopes got stuck in the machine and the machine ate them. Um, we had very serious, very, very serious uh, threats. I had death threats. Uh, the staff in the Co Collector General's office regularly got uh, mass cards for the repose of their souls. We had pitch invasions, as I called them, in, in lots of revenue offices. We had um, people jumping over the counter with very large flagpoles. So they all happened. People chaining themselves to radiators. It all happened. It's easy now to look back. I had to put myself back there in the last couple of days preparing for today. And it's sort of easy to look back and say, well, we thought big thoughts. We micromanaged it. In nine months between the day the government announced that revenue was going to do this and the issue of the first letters, we built a register because there was no register. We wrote, drafted two local property tax acts and the Department of Finance navigated them through the house. And we weren't used to those because there weren't money bills. Um, we, we turned people that used to do revenue payroll into property tax experts by shifting the payroll to Robert Watts Shared Service Centre so we could have staff. So we shifted out our payroll, turned the payroll people into property tax experts to answer the phones. Um, and we, but we, we had a lot of the issues that property ta that uh, water charges had, but on a different scale because they were more, they were less visible, uh, but they were all there. So the antagonism to the tax was strong. The levers that said, well, you can be protest all you like, but we're actually going to collect it somehow uh, from your pay, I think helped us get through that. And there was a lot of handholding of staff, a lot of visits by myself, to critical parts of the organization uh, and by my colleagues um, to get us through it. So I guess, uh, in conclusion, it would be a shame if all that effort went to waste. Thank you. Thank you, Josephine. Uh, and I think that the human dimension is probably one we didn't think uh, enough about, and, and it certainly brings it all home. I'm going to close this down because I think it's distracting for uh, people just for the time being. Um, can I introduce our next... I should also say that we will have time for questions, so will you hold them and we'll do it with all five uh, before we finish this session. Uh, our next speaker is the Assistant uh, Secretary of the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government with specific responsibility for the Water Division, uh, which is concerned with the water sector policy and the governance and funding of Irish Water and the Ervia Group. No small task, ladies and gentlemen, Maria Graham. Thank you very much and I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak on this report. I've worked in policy areas for over 20 years now and I do appreciate the importance of this critiques of, of policy intervention. So I suppose firstly I want to, to compliment uh, Jim on the way he has taken a huge volume of information and analysed it and, and drawn conclusions. I'm sure water charges will be debated for many years to come by economists, social scientists, political scientists, and probably then by historians. So my comments are really from a personal perspective um, and maybe just to give some, uh, maybe human dimension, but also some background to some of those, those issues and um, some of the policy things that struck me on reflection in the report. I think the important point that Jim drew out was that water charges was part of a much wider radical transformation of water services. While charging arose in the, in the context of the EU Water Framework Directive, um, the drive for reform was really 
the impact of historical underinvestment in water services. And that had manifested itself in 2007 with the cryptosporidium outbreak here in Galway, flooding in Cork in 2009, uh, and the big freezes in 2010 and 2011. Um, and it, you could say that water services had been the Cinderella of investment. And there was a mix of the department giving capital funding and the local authority giving operational funding. So um, in the words of one report that gave, came to us at the time, the funding model was broken and indeed was probably skewing investment decisions. And on the other hand, there's a well-developed model across numerous jurisdictions for delivering utility services. So you could argue to some extent the political proposition was, was quite simple. You create a utility, you introduce economic regulation, and you provide a funding source to drive that investment. And introducing charges at, as part of that model was underlined by a concept of fairness, which was, uh, as Jim said, conceived as a charge based on usage, therefore you needed meters, and a free allowance. And I suppose the point that I'm stressing is that these were all seen as inter integral to the, to the reform programme and interrelated. So it's not so much the options weren't looked at um, to some degree, such as the timing, the meeting programme and charging, opt-in or flat charges. It was raised, it was that these things were raised in the context of a very strong political allegiance to the overall reform programme and that interrelationship between creating the utility, the funding model and metering as the basis of a fair charging regime. And also in that context, passing the market corporation test or the Eurostat and the, the excellent presentation on Eurostat rules that Jim has given was pursued. It was integral to that idea of getting it off balance sheet. And I think Jim's report accurately reflects the difficulty of advancing that at the time um, because Irish Water was obviously at an early stage of development and the Eurostat rules were changing. So there were no precedents for the more qualitative approach that now exists on the present rules. In fact, I think that the first one, of, uh, the Irish water classification case was one of the first under that rule and this qualitative um, element was a particular uh, strong feature in the newer rules. Actually, on reflection on this question of the test, I think that maybe it had a bigger water policy impact than a fiscal impact. And by this, I mean that from a fiscal uh, perspective, there was greatest attractions, obviously, to a, a huge element of capital funding being off balance sheet. Funding Irish water on the government balance sheet costs 1.2 to 1.3 billion on an annual basis. But as a prudent approach had been taken to the government accounting, so in the root counting, when this decision actually came, it didn't have a significant fiscal impact. However, from a water policy perspective, the utility model where charges significantly uh, fund costs with off balance, a capacity off balance sheet and capacity to get your own borrowing is actually at the core of giving certainty to investment and supporting long-term planning. This is what Gas Networks Ireland does, this is what the ESB does and this is what Scottish Water and a whole range of public water utilities across Europe do. So in its absence, there's challenges between the multi-annual investment approach that a utility needs and annual exchequer funding. So now that we're funding domestic charges from uh, taxation, we have tried to mimic that process, I suppose, in a way by introducing under statute a multi-annual um, strategic funding plan for Irish water, but it still has to be part of the annual estimates process. The report also, I suppose, deals with the, the whole charging regimes and the difficulties of tariff design. And um, there were a number of difficulties in terms of establishing willingness to pay, affordability measures, and the acceptability of the, the regime. As I say, the concept of fairness that um, underpinned the initial regime was on paying for usage and a universal free allowance. And then this evolved, as Jim said, by November 20 to include certainty as a very important component, and that's how the capping came. And then the distinction between metered and unmetered usage added uh, a layer of complexity. And while the metering programme was extensive and ambitious, there were more metres being put in on a monthly basis in Ireland than Thames Water do on an annual basis, there was always going to be some properties that didn't ha weren't covered, so therefore you had essentially had two regimes. 
One of the particular challenges for evolving policy and on charges and affordability was restrictions on data and systems. And it's a point I just wanted to make because we, I chaired the interdepartmental group and I know the expert committee that uh, came afterwards would have been very conscious that actually we have a very uh, good system of, of dealing with affordability and income equality through taxation and the social protection system. Um, they are considered to be relatively progressive. But there were systemic issues in using these for affordability in a, in a water context, not only because there would have been gaps in coverage, but also because most of our systems are, are centred on the individual, um, whereas we were trying to look at uh, uh, a household. So there were constraints, therefore, in developing those measures other than the universal free allowance. The other element is obviously we were in tandem developing the economic regulatory model, the funding model, the levels of subsidy and affordability measures. So that added to the complexity. But perhaps I would say the experience of charging and metering tells a lot, of different, a lot to my mind in the difference between rational argument, evidence-based policy making, and the final point that uh, Jim raises in the report about winning um, the heart, on hearts and minds. The expert committee drew on work on Indicon to highlight that changes have to take account of political constraints and overall acceptability in options of the community. And when they looked at the water charging issues, they concluded that in making their rec recommendations, that if they did, did that in a way that met standard criteria and that might theoretically align with best practice but do not take account of the relevant background and context in Ireland, including the criterion of acceptability, those recommendations would not be used. I suppose there's a dangerous policy makers in believing that people understand the rationale for new policy, perhaps as I have described what, what our rationale was at the outset of my few words, because perhaps it reflects an approach that is well established in other jurisdictions, or the reasons for change are very clear to the insiders. And I think that's the watch point for policy initiatives to some extent in water, we set out to fix a problem that the general public didn't appreciate we had. Or that after um, significant years of pain and foot of the economic crash, it was fixing the problem stretched too much of that elastic band, if you wish, wish to say, of public acceptability. I think it's a challenge to the policy making process to integrate policy analysis with views on public acceptability because to some extent this can be more emotive than rational, it can be based on incomplete information and uncertainty, it can change over time, and it can be difficult to interpret. The political process is obviously one means of challenging, uh, channeling these views, but there are other forms of stakeholder engagement. And the water experience ultimate, ultimately led us to introduce a range of measures to improve engagement and accountability. We've introduced a national water forum, which includes stakeholders. There's a water advisory body that now uh, um, monitors Irish water's performance. And ultimately, the export group and the Oireachtas committee led to the development of a new funding uh, model and perhaps more settled policy in this area. I suppose the important point is that these emerged through the process rather than in the planning phase. But it is an area of particular focus for us in other areas that we're dealing with in, po policy, in water policy around the whole issue of stakeholder engagement. I suppose this brings me to one of the important contexts for the implementation of the water reform programme. It was one of scale and it was one of constraint timetable. And Jim talks about maybe doing too, too much uh, um, over that period. In the normal course, policy making follows a process of discussion, usually green papers, articulation, usually white papers, um, legislation, and then an implementation plan. And that allows th this rationale and exploration of acceptability and implementation issues to be explored. To some extent, we were doing it all at the same time. Legislation was being developed in tandem with the policy aspects. And this heightened uncertainty on implementation issues and curbed the time for debate. The reason of, for this was um, we were meeting the commitments within the EU IMF uh, agreement and with the Troika, which was the point that Jim was coming to in this. And it struck me a little bit like Josephine trying to put yourself back into a time space. It is almost difficult in 2018 to, to describe the, the impacts of developing 
and implementing policy in that time. We were working in the frame of a program to restore national financial sovereignty. And um, I suppose for me and for many public servants, I, I think we felt a huge obligation to work that we to work to ensure that we exited the program, restored our public finances and regained our economic independence. So consequently, there was a sense that measures and timelines were immutable, that systems were in place to monitor closely what we were doing and we were regularly, regularly updating me, um, the Troika on progress. So while there is lessons to be learned from the water charges uh, issue for other areas of, of policy uh, development, the context won't be the same and the drivers will be different and this I think is the point that Jim started with. Policy doesn't involve in a vacuum. The context is important, as is the interface between evidence-based policy making and political viewpoints, be that ideological or whatever the prevailing view on, con on concepts of equity and fairness. Mary Parker Follett said that people who learn by experience often make great messes of their lives that if they apply what they have learned from a past incident to the present, deciding from certain appearances that the circumstances are the same, forgetting that no two situations can ever be the same. That's not to say that lessons can't be learned, but that experience raises questions to which future policymakers must be attuned. And I think this report serves to highlight many of those important <coughs> questions which should be asked before embarking on implementation. Some of these are of the nature of what if. What if it happened over a time, different timescale, in a different order, or maybe in a different way? They're legitimate questions, but they have to be balanced with judgments on when to drive change and when to advance on imperfect information. Sometimes an incremental approach is important, other times radical change is required to create a new dynamic. And I'd be concerned if the water experience, set in its own particular context, was just taken as a cautionary tale and a deterrent to making bold choices uh, and radical decisions when that's the correct option. What I would say is that major reform is messy. Change is difficult and more complex than externally and internally we might appreciate. While there's a political capacity to look to the long term and to hold a vision to, to, that underpins change, short term successes are necessary and maybe a little bit of luck. In the context of water, we did set about changing both the organisational model and the funding model, and in retrospect, within the timescale, this is an enormous challenge. For example, in terms of organisation reform alone, it takes time to build credibility and trust in, in an organisation, and I think that's what revenue certainly had in terms of the property tax. It's a factor that we probably didn't pay enough attention to. Scottish water, in its birth, was marred in controversy, but now goes under the tagline of trusted for Scotland. Dull debates on the establishment of the ESB and the hydroelectricity scheme in the Shannon in 25 refer to it as a gamble altogether unfitted for the state. So the development and evaluation of policy needs to appreciate the time um, uh, factor. So just in concluding, I think I would uh, acknowledge that Tim says the reform pro uh, programme has had successes. There are um, aspects which have been embedded and survived one change of government. So I wanted to end with one story that I felt illustrated that success. Um, I mentioned the big freeze in 2010 um, because it was one of the things that highlighted our infrastructural problems. When this hall came, nearly every pipe in the country seemed to burst. And my role as part of the, the department team dealing with emergency management was to find out what was happening in every local authority. They were working very well to fix the problems and I was garnering the national information. Quite frankly, the Irish Times got there faster than me in trying to collate it. Um, and that said a lot about our capacity to have a national and regional perspective. In 2018, we've had drought and we've had snow and storms. In the same circumstances, I've seen how Irish waters have been able to handle it, dealing again with local authorities, but with a national capacity to use resources properly in the crisis, to issue national water conservation measures, uh, messages and regional host pipe bans and work hand in hand with the ESB. The same skills and processes are being used now for asset management um, and investment in our water services. The meters now in place give us information on consumption and on leakage. And the first fix that, they're, uh, that they're, you've been used for for households um, has saved 110 million litres per day, which is about the amount of water that Galway and uh, City and County use. Um, 
So conservation has now been embedded into a stated water policy. And interesting, 2018 is the first time that we had a published water, a statement of water policy, and it includes conservation quality and future proofing, and seems to have broad acceptability. So the process of reform, it's a journey, and one that still continues, and we have had to be adapted to change circumstances and the political environment, and somewhat resilient in terms of pursuing long-term goals to, to uh, develop water service infrastructure, which is fit for purpose. It's been a journey requiring relentless optimism, but as a major piece of pu public policy making, we must always aim to be open to evaluation, critique, and sharing of this experience to, for the benefit of, of future policy making. So um, I'm thankful for the work that Jim has done in this report. Thank you, Maria. Um, I'm, I'm conscious that there's a lot of talk. There will be time for questions in all of this. Can I introduce our, our, our next speaker to you, the leader of the Green Party, who also served as Minister for Communications, Energy and Natural Resources from 2007 to 2011. As you'll know, and you'll certainly know again from Jim's report, his party and himself have been consistent uh, in relation to both of these policy areas, and I think politically uh, paid a very high price uh, for their consistency and all of that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Eamon Ryan. TD. I'm very glad to be here. Um, policy issues around these two issues are not insignificant. This is how we use our land, our relationship with our land, and what our relationship with water is, essential for life. So this is a very useful study and very timely, I think, because we're still in the middle of this. It's not a historic issue, it's a current, it's today's issue. The land agency's out today, so we're right up, let's bring it up to date today. Um, I'm very honored to be in a room with people I worked with in the height of the crisis, the likes of Kevin Cardiff, Robert Watt, I don't know if Robert's still here, he's coming in later, Alan Nahern. I came out of that experience, I'd have to say, with the highest regard for the Irish Public Service, Public Administrative System. The people I dealt with were straight, hardworking, Fight, you could fight with them and still get over it and get up the next day and get back to work together. But we are different. I described it once in the retirement of a former Secretary General I used to, you go, uh, used to work with as yin and yang. And we are yin and yang. We're, they, the two have to go together and complement and sometimes fight. And it's, I say that before now making my main point that I think when I look at the, these two issues, I think we ended up I, the public administrative system determined what happened in the end on property tax, and the political system determined what it ended up in water tax, water charge. And I'm going to, now you'd say I would say this, the public administrative system got it wrong, we got the wrong property tax, and the political system got it right in the end, it took us a long while to get there, but we did in the end end up with the tax that I think actually, I'll explain why, makes sense. That's my thesis, my argument. I was involved in negotiating the renewed programme for government in 2009, Jim, as you said, where both of these were flagged, signalled, intention. Um, and so I'm coloured by that experience, or that kind of, what I'm, what I'm going to say is coloured from my own experience. A couple of points. Um, firstly, why the property tax is wrong. Because our relationship with land in this country is completely dysfunctional. The biggest, one of the biggest failings in our state to this present day is our sprawled social development model. I don't know, there must be a lot of academics here involved in transport, housing, provision of public social services. Our sprawled model, I was talking to people here, Galway, the city of car culture, doesn't work because of our relationship to land. And we had a chance to adjust that in 2009 when against the advice of the Tax Commission, we put in a statement that we were going to introduce a side value tax because primary objective behind it wasn't, Jim, as you say here in the note, okay, the wording in the re renewed program government might have said something about replacing stamp duty and useful revenue. That was not where it was coming from. Where it was coming from was a green perspective that we're treating land as if it doesn't matter and sprawl doesn't matter and we want to bring it back into closer, develop, denser development, and we want to stop the power of land hoarding, and stop the power of landowners, 
and a site value did the whole thing in one go. And the only reason, the real obstacle when you were fighting for it and you had to fight with the public administrative system, that's very difficult. We, we don't know who owns the land, was the key argument against it. It was in a technical administrative, our land value agency doesn't know who owns the land. That was the reason why we were told we couldn't do it. And that's why the Tax Commission actually said too, it's administratively difficult. Well, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. It was such sense, and nothing to, Europe had nothing to do with this. Troika had no involvement, this is Irish politics, decided we want to do it. And we even convinced Fine Gael and Labour, as they're come, good to see John Burton down there, put it into Europe when we switched over and the baton handed over in, 2000, in January 2011. Make sure whatever you do, put in site value tax in your new program for government, which they did, subject to the administrative system and so on. And that fatal mistake in my mind was made in 2012 to ditch the site value tax and go with the bog standard revenue raising property. And it was a real achievement. I mean, I'm not disputing one and a half million envelopes ain't easy, but we blew it. The chance to reform, and you can reform in a crisis, was given up. And we ended up, as you said, Jim, the property tax is not fit for purpose. It's raising less and less percentage terms as politically as margin real difficultly and undermines public confidence in the tax system because I know when I'm doing my annual property tax return, I do in my house in South Dublin, I'm slightly cringing that I'm lying here. As I put down, I think the value of my house is 800,000. In fact, it's twice that probably at this stage and the whole country is doing this and the political system will not adjust because they don't want the wrath of the voters of being real about tax. So when it gets some fudge next week or whatever, next few weeks on property tax. And just because we didn't stand up to first principles, we want to manage our land efficiently. We want to live lightly on this earth, on our island, and stop the sprawl. Water tax was also recommended, rightly, in the commission. And again, I have a slight, I'm not, not being critical here, this is good teasing out ideas. In the history of this, I think, Jim, you're, Jim, you're saying here that kind of the introduction in the Tax Commission, which came out in September 2009, just before our renewed programme for government, on the likes of the water tax was kind of based on, the whole decision on water tax was based around budget time at the time. Yes, that might have been somewhat in the thinking, but actually, no. It, it went back to the original establishment of the Tax Commission. The writing instructions, Kevin, you'll remember this, was fairly clear, was to broaden the tax base, realising we'd and also to manage resources efficiently. Natural resources, water being one of the most crucial. We have to stop um, thinking it's for free. It's an essential green prim premise. First thing is, is you, you put value, you value nature. Um, and, and I think the politics of this is everything. And the politics you have to stand, you almost have to go back to the poll tax with Margaret Thatcher because the Socialist Party militant in the UK brought down Margaret Thatcher on that. They were very close to Joe Higgins and the, and the lads in the Socialist Party who I get on with, but they kind of said, this is, the, this is the best way of bringing down the system, lads. So it was direct import into Ireland, applied in the early 90s, mid 90s, went right through the 80s, in fact, but through, through to the early 90s. Labour went from 23%, as you, the history here is superb, in, in Dublin, in, uh, Dublin West. West, down to 3%. Joe Higgins went up, and so Brendan Howland said, the threat, politics dumb, politics in the end trumps public administration, in truth, if, even if it is yin and yang. Politics will always win when it comes to that sort of vote decision. And similarly, the fact that Joe Higgins was just lost to Brian Lennon by a few hundred votes meant that so both Labour and Fianna Fáil are saying, this is politically too sensitive, don't, don't, don't do it. Um, and that history is important to understand as to what happened for the, right through to the recent years. I think politics is also important because it tells less. One of the lessons I have is we in the political system, we have to hold up where we're not, we're not engaged enough in the European policy process. It's too difficult, it's too complex. If you're a minister, I'll be honest, you're getting briefs all the time coming from the European Council, and geez, you're reading them on the plane on the way over. Because there's so much, so much validation comes in there. We need to resolve, and particularly now Brexit, we're going to have to really ramp up our skills and ability in European politics. Had we actually really understood what was happening in the, in the Water Framework Directive, had we been really active in the Council back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the Water Framework Directive was written, which actually set out the policy, clever, intelligent, environmental policy, which the Commission was good at, 
then we would have come at it in Irish politics in a different way, but we didn't. And then the whole the history is set out. But I would argue that we came around in the end to the right result. And actually, it was an Oireachtas committee, the one in two, this, two years ago, whatever, a year ago. And the various things, the reason why I think the, Irish, the political system wanted metering is that there's a certain justice issue in it. And Brendan Howland realised right back in his contribution, as you record in the debate in, in back in the 90s, when we stopped the water charges. But also, there's a certain political instinct. The world is moving to the internet of things, managing, managing. You can't put it, it's hard to define that, but you're, you're all the time meeting people who are telling you this is where we're going, smart countries are going to be good at that. So it's intangible reasons why you'd stand up for metering. But last but not least, I'd say, in relation to that CSO and Eurostat, and you're absolutely right, we have to respect independence in Eurostat, but I think there's also political understanding that the fundamental argument, there is a right to water. It's not an economic commodity like other commodities. I'm sorry, I'd love to sit down with Eurostat and say, I disagree with you. If you're powerful, what's your assumptions around economic accounting? Because I think water is not like an ordinary product. It's not a marketable product. I think we ended up in a system which recognises that, which was a ring the original 2009, um, very short few lines around the, in the renewed programme for government, give a basic allowance, have a referendum, charge just for waste. There is a right to water, but there's not a right to waste. And that's what we've ended up with. We haven't even got there yet, and there's still a mishmash. The metering stuff is all a bit odd. I have this vision of someone with a divining rod now with this group metering scheme or whatever. I haven't a clue how that'll work. But, but I think in the end, it wasn't actually, I think, in the end, it took us, it was a difficult social period in our, and a bit of difficult politics for the likes of uh, people involved directly, particularly in the last government. My heart went out to them in the stress. And, and, uh, but um, anyway, that's, I just wanted to make that point. I think in this instance, because it actually relates to today, because whatever that land agency is doing today in terms of public land, I think we still have work job to do in what happens in private land. And I think we start putting a price on people who are hoarding land, stop just allowing private landowners to determine what housing policy is. That's not a small issue. And similarly with water, we've still got a work to do, but I think we got the basic, the legislative stuff around charging is right now. Now the job is around investment and planning and management and water in a whole range of different ways. Land use plan, we need a national land use plan which is part of, which, which is driven by water quality and carbon and, um, and site value tax would actually have helped make that really work. And so I think we should introduce it still. We should learn from the mistakes, some of the policy analysis uh, set out here, and as well as doing a public land agency, do a site value tax to provide the housing and transport and to stop the sprawl that's really costing our country. And lastly, that's in tune with the national planning framework, which I think got that right, exactly right. Our national development plan abandoned it. It's nothing to do with concentrated development in the end. And that's why I say this is today's issue. Our national planning, our, our national planning framework was absolutely bang on for political reasons. This is where politics goes wrong sometimes. Our political system just abandoned all those principles about concentrated development, low carbon, and so on in the development plan. That's why this is today's issue. The development plan has to change. Thank you. Thanks, Eamon. Our final speaker uh, for this session is the former Secretary General of the Department of Education and Science. He was the chairperson, as you heard uh, earlier on, of the 2012 Interdepartmental Expert Group, which designed the local property tax. He was subsequently asked three years ago by the Minister for Finance to review the operation of the property tax and to come up with any changes, and we heard about that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Thornhill. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Chairman. I'm delighted to be here, um, and it's actually fantastic, Alan, thank you very much, to be the last speaker on a panel which is discussing a report which I largely agree with, which I completely agree with, and then to follow Eamon Ryan. So I, what better opportunity is, and to be standing between people and their, and their tea. 
Um, the last time, actually, Eamon, I don't know if you remember when we met, it was a very wet day, and you were campaigning in the last general election, and I'm a constituent of yours, of course. And now, Eamon and myself had, particularly when I was chair of the National Competitiveness Council, a, range, a continuing range of disagreements over energy price, prices and energy incentives. And anyway, and the doorbell rings, and there is a wet and bedraggled Eamon Ryan on his own. It was torrential rain outside. So I said, will you come in? No, he says, I'm in a hurry. And so, but anyway, we, we didn't talk about energy policy, but I talked about the, um, the Dublin electorate and how you had narrowed, because your name was R, you narrowly lost a seat to a woman called C, if I remember, in the European elections. And um, I said, Eamon, you'll do well in this generation. There's a lot of sympathy here uh, for you. He said, I don't want sympathy, I want votes, and I want your vote. <laughs> so, but I still remember that, Eamon. It was a great encounter. But, um, and I find myself in a difficult position to, uh, responding to your comments about the site value tax. And the site value tax is conceptually elegant. It's appropriate for all the reasons that you suggest. And we had, some, we had some tortured moments in the Interdepartmental Committee recommending against it. And we didn't recommend it against it for the reasons that you've adduced now that there was a dark conspiracy of dark capital behind uh, the, the truth as far as land ownership was concerned. Two reasons. One, it wouldn't have met the test of easy and rapid implementation. And secondly, most of the taxpayers wouldn't understand it. That was, those were the two reasons. But... We'd, and I hark back again to my NCC days, Eamon, we did recommend that um, site, in the NCC that site value tax be used to, to replace the cumbersome and antiquated Victorian commercial rating system that we have. Because property owners, lesser, leasers, uh, people who lease property, people who rent property, know more about the value of the site than they do about the value of the building they're in. Site value is what matters. So as far as the long haul change in public attitudes towards site value tax will be concerned. Proper commercial property is the place to start. And just little on the doorstep, I'll tell you the next time round, make this a major plank of the Green Party, Green Party policy. However, coming back to the reason why we're here, um, I think Jim's account and Jim's report and his analysis is, is excellent. I have no issue at all with either the, the narrative or the analysis. Um, I don't have the same vantage point as regards LPT, oh sorry, as regards water charges as I do have on, um, on the LPT, but I do get the sense that your conclusions and recommendations are sound. Um, okay, so, and I hope that this report won't be just put on bookshelves, that it'll be on people's desks, and when policy, when new policies are being devised and policy changes are being devised, that the O'Leary report will be referred to um, over over a long period ahead. Um, since I'm so much in agreement with Jim and since I'm the last speaker here, um, all I can do is pull out a few discussion points or points for mention, and some of them are rather gossipy side, so um, that'll give us hopefully a bit, of, a bit of appetite for the coffee break that is coming up, Chair, is it? <laughs> Not too soon, oh dear, oh dear. Um, I empathized, I agree fully with the, with the point you make, Jim, that design is vital and the alignment of design with a limited number of soundly based and realistic objectives and with realistic timescales is absolutely vital. And I'm afraid that's the hurdle that the residential site value tax fell on as far as we were concerned. The other piece, and it's an echo of what Josephine said, when the Interdevarmental Committee we were, met, we were in, in, a in a sense in the early period of fiscal wartime. Um, we were still in the workout period as far as the, as far as the aftermath of the, of the crash was concerned. And we all in that committee had a strong commitment to plan for success. Now that same commitment was carried on into the revenue. Um, but so we wanted a model which adhered to reasonable and easily understood principles and was also easy to understand. Uh, we also knew we only had one shot at it and we had to keep our report as simple and as focused as possible. We resisted, as Jim mentioned, the uh, temptation to use our terms of reference to reform the structure of local government financing, a job which hasn't actually started yet, but which does need to be done, notwithstanding its, its complexities. The second vital condition, as, 
as far as I, as far as I see it, and I think this is brought out also in Jim's report, is that the organization concerned with implementation has to be effective and credible. Um, the, in the context of the LPT, the precursor household charge wasn't working. In the latter days of our work in the Interdepartmental Committee, the compliance rate was edging towards 50%. And there seemed to be a, a threat of a, of a widespread campaign of civil disobedience. There was a live question in all our minds about the willingness of the public to support unpopular, even if necessary, measures. And those of us who dipped into political science for at various stages in our career know that, of course, one of the tests of an effective polity or entity is that it can raise taxes. The household charge episode gave us cause to wonder, was that test being, was that test, was passing that test now under threat in the, in the fevered political atmosphere of Ireland at the time. So when it came to implementation, our choices were revenue and the local authorities. The thinking at the time in the Department of, of the Environment seemed to favour local authorities and their service management agency, the local government management agency. That was also the view of the local authorities. Very reasonable at a conceptual level. Local taxes should be collected by local agencies. Um, but the LGMA, which had managed the um, non-principal private residences charge apparently well, although of course nobody knew what the estimated tax base or what the real tax base was there. So, but anyway, they, they overshot their target, which seemed to please everybody at the time, had run into strong headwinds in trying to collect the household charge. Um, the compliance rate was unacceptable, but, and furthermore, the compliance rate of the local authorities in relation to the, the collection of commercial rates and commercial water charges was frankly unacceptable. And I remember one of our meetings with the interest groups, a group of local authority representatives, these are elected representatives, were, were meeting us, and I raised the issue of the 75%, as it was then, I think, collection rate of uh, commercial, for commercial rates and the 50% collection compliance rate for water charge rates. Uh, he says to me, business is tough. He says, we have, to, we have to give them a break. I wonder, did anybody ever say that to the Collector General of Taxes or to the chairperson of the Revenue Commission? <laughs> but you can tell us what the answer was. <laughs> <laughs> the answer was, we'll give you an installment arrangement. But that was, but on the other hand, in Jostein's organization, there was a nervousness in, in the revenue we knew about being given a task which seemed to have poor prospects of success. And more particularly, the consequent risk of spillover damage onto its credibility in collecting other taxes. The committee rapidly began, or the Interdevelopmental Committee, rapidly began to edge towards deadlock on this particular issue. So in a sense, the age-old tactic was followed here of taking the difficult issue out of the committee room. So, Derek Morn, and who is now Secretary General of the Department of Finance and myself, worked and touched base on this issue. It was agreed he would speak to Minister Noon and I would speak to Minister Hogan. Very rapidly, I found myself in one of the smaller rooms in government buildings with Ministers Hogan and, um, and Noonan and their political advisors. No other, no other um, serving civil servants present, or there was one civil servant present, but he was acting as the programme manager at the time. Um, I was asked to give a presentation of our progress in relation to the property tax I did. Um, there wasn't a change in um, Minister Noonan's facial gestures, as those of you who have dealt with him will know and his style, and suddenly he looks at me and he says, Josephine has come to see me. He's, and uh, she said she'll, she'll do the tax if, she can, if, we, if the government tell the public immediately and she has an adequate run in time. Mm, and what do you think? Now, Josephine, you slipped up, you never told me that you'd been to see him. But however, I said, oh, she definitely needs the time. And I said this out of conviction. Um, why? Well, first of all, it's difficult. Secondly, she will have to cooperate and get information from a number of other organizations which are not within the narrow public service. So the knowledge that the revenue is going to collect the, um, collect the property tax needs to be made public. And it was. And 
Jim has, Jim also mentions uh, Josephine's participation, or audience, I suppose you call it, in front of an economic management committee meeting, which served further in gender confidence. And that illustrates a point. We're here in the Whitaker Institute, a man who showed that people do matter and that the, and that the quality of leadership and the, and the character of leaders matters. In this instance, I think, Josephine, you measured up to the tape. And uh, well done. And well done in persuading the politicians and well done in persuading your own organization to conduct a, a very difficult uh, operation. Now, there were some unexpected developments, and I see the former Tanisht and Minister for Social Protection here now, um, which she, she may remember the, the rattle of distant gunfire on this particular issue. Um, uh, revenue placed significant importance, which persuaded all of us in the committee, on the importance of being able to deduct at source. Now, I thought deduction at source was, in fact, the way to go for most people, but revenue, I think, probably saw it more as an important fallback measure rather than the, the position for most people. And um, the Department of Social Protection flatly refused to allow revenue ex access to their uh, computer system to allow deduction at source. Now, that raged over a few, that, that fight raged over a few uh, committee meetings and it was, it was an, and the outcome was satisfactory. And it led to certain public figures who are on the public payroll who had said they would rather go to jail rather than, um, rather than pay the local property tax, um, paying the local property tax, not necessarily willingly, but by, um, through the default mechanism. So on the issue of the provisionality of the, of the success of the, of the property tax, I think Jim is right. Until the government takes the decisions to address the challenges of preserving the integrity of the tax, and I've chosen those words carefully, in the face of rising property values, success and durability remain provisional at best. My own view, and I've argued that in the 2015 report, is that LPT liabilities should be based on regular open market revaluations of residences, but that rising property values should not create shocks for taxpayers, windfall gains for local authorities, and be unrelated to changes in general economic conditions, particularly the general price level and the general movement in incomes. So, Difficult enough to square that circle, but I put forward a, re a recommendation in the 2015 report that different property tax rates would apply in different local authority areas. The easy recourse, of course, is either to freeze values or to use administratively determined uh, property values. Both, in the final analysis, draw, the property, draw property taxes into disrepute. Um, the British have not revised the base, or the English and Welsh, I should say, have not revised the basis for the council tax valuation since 1993. It hasn't been done in Northern Ireland since 1997, and there have been, and there are examples of, um, other examples of frozen or administratively determined values across a range of other jurisdictions. If we go down that road in this country, the tax is likely to fail in the long run, partly for the reasons that Jim and Josephine have just mentioned, that it becomes less significant from a, from a revenue um, point of view, but also it'll become uh, challengeable under the Constitution, under the provisions of the Constitution, and there is the precedent of the IFA um, challenge to, the, to, the, to agricultural rates back in the 1970s, where significantly the Supreme Court said not only was the system inequitable, but government had done nothing to address the inequities. Now, so that's, that is, that's a very important point. There's one point that does concern me a bit in recent commentary about the LPT, and that is that the value of LPT liabilities should remain stable over time. Now, the stability message seems to be, don't worry, taxpayer, your tax is going to remain the same. Um, I believe that tax liabilities should be referenced to changes in income and general uh, price levels, but not frozen in time. Um, ideally, a property tax liability will depend on a number of things, the needs of the local authorities and also the general government budgetary policy. And 
the, and this comes, I suppose, to the final point. Will the property tax ever become a significant source of revenue? Will it allow for what Jim, Jim I think, referred to as a shifting of property tax revenues from, um, from income tax, VAT, to property, thus broadening the tax base, which, of course, would be, would be, very, would be very equitable. But unless the challenge of dealing with the valuation system and increasing stability in the minds of taxpayers as to their property tax liabilities is met, that second longer term objective will, take, will not be possible. And if the challenge, the other challenge is met, well then over time, Jim, difficult, difficult um, objectives do take some time, as you rightly point out, to achieve, and I would like to see that day dawning at some stage in our tax system. So thank you very much.